We continue our series on enough. It's a series uh, built off of the book of Colossians. And as we have been walking through Colossians, we uh, just want to give you a, a sort of an update as to where, where we've been real quickly. Is This is a letter that was written by Paul to a church in Colossae. And uh, as this new church was doing well in some areas, there were some things that were of concern. Some false teachers were creeping in, and they were trying to add to the gospel. It's what we call syncretism. And because of this syncretism, they were saying, you take the gospel here that, that, uh, that, that Paul had taught uh, Epaphroditus, who ended up sharing with us, and we took that gospel, and then we added this and add that and add that. And when you add all those elements to it, it ends up changing what the gospel is about. And so what Paul does is for the first two chapters, he begins, he deals with theological issues. And so from a theological standpoint, he, he begins to uh, dissect their arguments and, and begin to show the errors of those false teachers and begins to, to separate those. And it was like what we saw in the video. And in the video, when you see all these different ingredients that are being poured into this one glass and, and you get this cloudy look, and then all of a sudden, near the end, you began to see that some of those began to separate. Some of them began to move out. And then by the time when you get to the end of the video, what you've got is the clear, pure, blue water. And what Paul does is for two chapters, from a theological standpoint, he's taken all that stuff out. And is he separating everything? And then all of a sudden, when you get to chapters three and four, he has completed the theological part, and now he moves into what we call the practical part. And this is the practical application as to all the things that he's told us in, in chapters one and two. He talked about the preeminence of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and supremacy of Christ and every, exactly what we just sang about, about the powerful name of Jesus. And because of that, he says, this is how it will affect your life. And so today we're going to talk about living the resurrected life and we say part one. Now, if there's a part one, what does that speak to you? What does that say? There's going to be a part two. And it also says that you will be lacking in your full knowledge unless you come back next week to get part two. We're not even going to live stream it. Uh, we're not going to put it on the website. You got to be here in the pews. Uh, and if you don't, I'll make your, I'll have a list of the names who aren't here and it'll be a year from now. You'll call for some counseling appointment. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to say, Hey, you missed part two. Uh, that's why your life is messed up. Uh, so, but it is when you look at this, at this section, as you'll see in chapter three, the way the section is broken down, it's like the first 11 verses are things that we need to put off. And then you come to verses 12 through 17, and it's the stuff that you need to put on. So we're going to break it in half. But it is all built around this resurrected life. And, uh, and because Christ died on the cross for our sins, and then when he rose from the dead, and when we receive Christ as Savior, it is as if we were crucified with him on that cross. We died to our old self. And on this spiritual plane, we live with him, and we live this resurrected life because we have the power of Christ within us, the resurrection power. So how do you live that life? And so Paul, writing to the Colossians, has given him two chapters of theology. Now he's going to go to the practical, this is how you do it. This is how you live until Christ returns. So I want to read chapter three, verses one through 11, all right? So let's just follow with me. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above. But before we even go there, 
If it says, if you've been raised with Christ, if I could take you back to chapter two, verse 20, it says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. So he's talked about how we'd already died to Christ, and Chad talked about that last week, and that we have died to Christ. Now he picks it up in chapter three, and he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, for those of you who um, have been a part of this church and know me, I'm a very, you know, I'm pretty analytical, and when I will look at a passage of Scripture, we start at the top and kind of work all the way through. Today is, is going to take you out of your comfort zone and take me out of my comfort zone. So if you're the person that's got to go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, it's going to be a tough day for you, okay? But just know it's going to be a tough day for me too. So can we just join our hearts and our hands? Uh, because the way we're going to break this passage down is a little bit different. And the way we're going to break this passage down is we're going to look at it in four different ways. I'm going to look at it, first of all, as old problems, then a new perspective, a fresh approach, and added benefits. There'll be old problems, there'll be a new perspective, a fresh approach, and then added benefits. So if we're going to talk about old problems, we have to start at verse 5. This is difficult, but we're going to do that. Are you ready? We're going to start at verse 5, and we're going to look at the old problems that Paul's talking about. Now, what we need to understand is when Paul is writing to this church at Colossae, you realize that every single person that's in this church grew up in a pagan background. Every person in this church was lost and has made a decision to receive Christ and become a Christ follower. They didn't have transfers from the Second Baptist Church of Colossae. They didn't have some Presbyterians that wanted to come by and, and worship with them or some Methodists that said, hey, we want to come and be a part of your church. They didn't have any of that. Every person in that church came from a pagan background. And so when he begins to talk about the old problems, this is the lifestyle that they were a part of. This is what they were accustomed to. And he's talking to them about how they're going to need to put those away. And it starts in, in, in verse 5. And he's telling them, even though a believer is dead to the world with Christ, he still lives in this world and has a mortal body and still has temptation. And so we list five vices that they need to deal with. And the first one begins with sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia, which comes from where we get our word pornography. And it's a word that means any kind of sexual sin. And it specifically refers to sexual activity that happens outside of marriage. And so he says, sexual immorality, impurity 
Impurity refers to any kind of moral impurity. However, most often it includes sexual sin. Passion. This is a word that means a shameful passion which leads to sexual excesses. It's habitual lust. So the first three things he talks about, sexual immorality, impurity, and passion, all deal with what's happening in that area from a sexual standpoint. And then he has the word evil desire, which is a basic human tendency towards sin. It's like a comprehensive term. And so as he's writing to these new believers and they're reading this, he's telling these are some things that you got to deal with. They're old problems. They're old problems that you've had in your life. And I'm going to tell you as a believer, they're old problems that you're going to have to deal with in your life. And one description of the first century was this. In the first century, the moral indifference of the age fueled uncontrolled erotic passion, misdirected sexual desire, and it bred sexual excesses. Now, I read that sentence, and then then the part of me over here remembers the voices of people when I interact with them, and they talk about the Bible, and they say, why would you want to read some book that was written 2,000 years ago? It doesn't apply to us at all. (laughs) Really? Really? It sounds like they're describing the 21st century. Our culture is not so different from the first century. Sexual immorality within our society is promoted as a good thing. What we watch, what we listen to, what we buy has been so sexualized it's almost impossible to escape an improper understanding of sex. Self-control is rarely encouraged or celebrated. And when the church speaks up on sexual sin, it is vilified and quickly dismissed as prudish, puritanical, and closed-minded. And as we have sexual excesses and deviancy thrown in our faces over and over again, we will have a culture that will be ripe with sexual immorality. And as a believer in Christ, you will have those same temptations. They are old problems. They were old problems for these people coming out of a pagan uh, culture. They're old problems that we have right here today. And so he deals with the sexual immorality part of it. And he says, I'm going to identify the old problems. And then the last thing is covetousness. Now I cannot say that word. And I don't know if it's covetousness, covetousness. You're wanting somebody other's stuff, okay? Let's just go with that. It's you've got this, um, it's got this bad desire to always want something that somebody else has. And, uh, and what happens is, and whether it is possessions or uh, whether it is things, uh, whether it is sex, it is things out of an excess that it becomes idolatry. It takes priority in your life. It's what drives you. I've got to have that bigger house or bigger car or or bigger paycheck or or these different relationships, whatever it may be. And it says in here in verse uh, verse 5, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's idolatry. And so he points these things out for them and say, these are old problems that you've got to deal with. But then he comes to verse 6 and he says, and on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, whenever you see the wrath of God, some people say, well, there you go again. It's just that mean old God up there. The wrath of God, what that means, it's tied to holiness and love and justice. God is a holy God. He is perfect. And he has this love for us. And because of his holiness and because of his love for us, 
that whenever people do things that are outside of his will and that demean him and that put him down as our God, as our creator, and then as our Lord and as our savior, then there will have to be punishment on that. That's justice. That is justice. He's a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. And that's what we would want. We live in a society that's built on justice. When people do wrong, we feel they should be punished. But somehow when we do wrong in the sight of God, we don't feel we should be punished. But he's telling you right here, with these problems, old problems, the wrath of God will come. What you sow, you will reap. And there will be consequences. There'll be consequences here while you live here on earth, but then there'll also be consequences in the future because at the final judgment, we'll have to make an accountable account of our sins and, and our actions and of our lives. And so he says the wrath of God will be coming. And in verse seven, he says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. This is the what you lived in. This is the way you live before you came to receive Christ. And he says, but now you must put them all away. And he goes into another list of old problems. And so we had the sexual immorality and, uh, and we had them dealing with impurity and evil desires and passions and, and that covet word. And, and so we had all of those. And now all of a sudden he comes into a whole, a whole other group. And he talks about verse eight, you gotta put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Now look at those, anger, wrath, malice. This connotes an attitude of anger and ill will towards others. And when you get anger, malice, and wrath, you can pretty well guess that something's gonna come out and in your speech that's not gonna, going to be good. Do you agree with that? Most of the times we, we make things we wish we never said, they usually come out of anger or malice or wrath. And so he follows that up and he talks about slander and obscene talk. Slander. Man, we live in the... Um, uh, to me, the most slanderous uh, culture I guess we've ever lived in in the history of the world because of social media. And it's not a knock on social media. It's, you could call it the internet or whatever. I mean, we can get stuff out so quick. And somebody can say something about somebody and it not really be true, and it takes legs and it begins to go everywhere. And then before that person can ever come and defend themselves and put the fire out, it's already gone on. And, and, we, and we hold on to those things and remember. And I'm as guilty of that of, any, of anyone. Because there'll be something, years ago, somebody said something about somebody and then somebody will bring their name up and the first thing I will say, oh, that's the one that did so-and-so. They go, oh, no, no, that turned out not to be true. I, I, you know, I, I guess I didn't get the memo. I, all I remembered was, was the things that had been said. Oh, yeah, that wasn't true. But you see, what it did was it's, it's, it's destroyed them. And so he's looking at these people and he says, listen, You've got to avoid these things. These are things that you've got to, to get a handle on. And he talks about anger, wrath, malice, and slander. And then he talks about obscene talk. Obscene talk. Just um, trash talk. And not trash talk like, hey, my team's going to beat your team type thing. But, I mean, just trashy language. Just trashy language. And, um, and I would say in, in seems like today's culture, just what's going on is that we, we, we throw out profanity more and more as if it's just a part of the natural language. And you kind of wonder, why is that way? Well, it's 
kind of the old thing we learned when we first got a computer. Does anybody remember when you got a computer and people were talking about when you program a computer, there was that little statement, do you remember? Garbage in, garbage out. And so whatever we take in usually comes out. And so if we go and watch movies or YouTube videos or whatever we watch, and as we watch that, and it's explicit with, uh, with F-bombs and GDs and all of this stuff, you just keep watching that and watching that and watching that and watching that and watching that, and after a while, it just becomes second nature to you, and all of a sudden, you pick up on it, and you're using those same words. And it's incredible. I mean, you'll go to a, uh, you'll be at a movie theater, and they'll show a trailer of a movie that's coming, you say, hey, I... I think I want to go see that. And the trailer, you know, hey, boy, those 30 seconds in there made that thing look, look pretty good. I'm all fired up. What I've learned is that before I'll ever go to a movie, before Janice and I go to a movie, we go to, a, it's an app from Focus on the Family called Plugged In. It's a great app. You go to Plugged In, and it'll just kind of give you a review, and then it will say, it's got an area that's called like sexual content and then uh, crude or profane language. And so I go down there, and there's a movie I want to see. I look down there, crew profane. 70 F-words, 12 GDs, and then these instances of God's name taken in vain. Well, wouldn't that be a fun hour and a half? <laughs> Do you want to sit in something where someone's throwing all that kind of stuff at you uh, the whole time? Well, let's just say you don't, it doesn't bother you. You just do one, and then let's go to the next movie. Let's go to the next one. Let's go to the next one. I'm telling you what, you get a steady diet of that, you know what? That's going to be a part of your conversation going to be part of the way that you talk and and I just you know it's kind of like gets gets on my hot button um, of when uh, people try to express themselves and they cannot express themselves without a string of profanities in there to get their point across now I just got to tell you folks when I was growing up or when I went through school I remember being taught where a person said if a man or a woman uh can only express themselves by using profanity, it shows they're ignorant. Because it means they don't know how to phrase things to be able to express themselves without throwing a string of profanities all over the place to try to emphasize a point. You don't need that. Just tell, tell me what you believe and just leave all the other profanity out. But usually what happens is you gotta throw in the profanity, just say, hey, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna throw this and that. Hey, you don't know what you're talking about, you're an idiot. That, that's kind of why you look at that. And, and it demeans you. And Paul understands this. And he's saying on here, hey, these are things we need to get right, rid of. And you get rid of this anger, the malice, the wrath, the slander, the obscene talk. And then in verse 9 he says, and don't lie to one another. And don't lie to one another. In Colossians 2, 2, remember he had that verse where he says, you want to knit your hearts together in love? knit your hearts together. He's trying to build that, that church family of harmony. And he says, hey, don't lie to one another. You lie, you lose your trust. You lose your unity. These are old problems. Everything that I've said to you, you cannot sit there and I can't sit there and say, well, that's that old first century stuff. Doesn't apply to us. It's, it's here today. It's old problems. But if I'm gonna live a resurrected life, I've got these old problems. What needs to happen? There needs to be a new perspective, all right? Second of all, there needs to be a new perspective. 
It says in verse one, now we're going to verses one through four. So for those that love to start at the beginning, we're there, babe. All right. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, this is that resurrected life. All right. You've been raised with Christ. You have the, the power of Christ living within you. And if you've been raised with Christ, this means this is a different style life. It is the resurrected life. So what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to do two things. Number one, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the place of power, the place of prominence. And you are to seek the things that are above. Seek, that means to set your heart on something. Learn how to pursue the things of heaven. Uh, hold fast to Christ as the center and the source of all of your joys. In fact, Jesus himself said the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. The perspective is, not just here on this earth, I need to be able to seek the things that are above. Now that does not mean that we withdraw from the world and we constantly dream about heaven and live with our heads in the clouds. No, we're supposed to see this present world against the background of the larger world of eternity. Our allegiance to Christ should monitor all of our earthly concerns and attachments and make sure that we don't lose our spiritual balance. So my perspective is to set my mind and my heart on things that are above. To begin thinking about the resurrected Christ. Think about who he is. Think about what he's called me to do. And I want to live that life out of that perspective. And my motivation for this is the second thing, and that is that your life is hidden with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. Verse 3 says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That means that God counts the believer risen with Christ, risen to a new life. Do you know how God sees you? This is you. And then the way God sees you is you who have died and been raised with Christ. Christ then wraps himself around you. And so whenever God sees you, he doesn't just see this. He doesn't just see Danny Wood. He sees Danny Wood hidden in Christ. He sees me walking every day in Christ. He sees me as his adopted son. He sees me as a part of the family. He sees me enveloped in the righteousness of Christ. And so if I am hidden in Christ, my new perspective is I want to live for him while I'm here on earth. I know that one day when I take my last breath, I'll spend eternity in heaven. But while I'm here right now on earth, this is the way my heavenly father sees me. He sees me hidden in Christ. And I want to live according to that. And so with these old problems, I want to have a new perspective. But the third is I want to have a fresh approach. In order to have a, a new perspective, I need to have a fresh approach. He says in verse 5, we're going to look at 5a, 8a, go 9b and 10. 5a, remember those five things we talked about? He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death what is earthly in you. Now, to try to help us to remember this, I phrased it a little differently. Are you ready? Number one is this. Don't prune the plant of your sinful actions, but dig out its roots and utterly destroy it. Write all those words down. Every word is important, Okay. Don't prune the plan of your sinful actions, but dig out its roots and utterly destroy it. He says here, put to death. Put to death. It's not like the Princess Bride movie where there's kind of different kind of deaths. This is put to death. Be done with it. We will commit sin in our actions. 
And the Bible is explicit that sin's source is much deeper. Sin is like a plant. And while most will see the leaves or the flowers or the stalks, there is a root with sin that runs deep. And what happens with us is when we get convicted of a sin, then what we'll do is like trim the leaves off a little bit, maybe cut a stalk off, but we leave the root in there. And just when we think that we're going to have victory over that sin because there's the roots that have gone deep, guess what? It comes back up and the flowers come back and the leaves come back. And all of a sudden I find myself still being held to that particular sin. He said, with the sexual immorality, uh, with the impurity, with the passion, with the evil desires, or with the coveting, with all of that, he says you need to put it to death. You need to pull up the roots. And so what we need to do is uh, have a call to holiness, to where your goal in life is because of your virtue, the, the virtue of your union with Jesus Christ, you need to work yourself out and express itself out in every thought, deed, and relationship because of that union with him it is a call to holiness and to say, let's dig out the root and let's get it over here. And when we live the resurrected life and we do not give in to the cultural norms of immorality, we become an advertisement for what it means to be in Christ and what it does for a person's life because we are living counter to our culture. And then unbelievers should see a clear difference in the way that Christians handle their sexuality, handle their possessions, handle their conversations. And when that happens, opportunities will arise where we can be used to impact our culture for God's kingdom. There will be opportunities for us to be able to tell people about what Christ has done in our lives that you may never think would come about. And the only way it will come about is because your life is different. If my life and your life looks just like the culture, no one's going to come to you when the culture is beating them down and they realize there's an emptiness there because why would they come to you or come to me when there's nothing different in my life? You're living just like I am, I don't see any difference. But when you live the resurrected life to where you've pulled some of that root of that sin out and it's, it's not there in your life, and other people are getting beaten down by that, but yet they can look at your life and see there's something different, then all of a sudden you've got opportunities for gospel conversations and an opportunity to help see, steer someone to understand who God is. You know, in all of this, we talked about, when this thing, you know, the great thing about preaching through a book is that um, uh, you just take it wherever it comes. And on this week, this is where this passage of Scripture comes. And, and we've had, uh, you know, a month of, uh, of, of things in Hollywood and everywhere else of, of all these um, uh, uh, stories coming out and, and allegations and things of sexual misbehavior. And I've got a fraternity brother of mine who is in Hollywood who works with the media. And as he works with the media there and works with those in Hollywood, he sent me a newsletter, a prayer letter. And he said, I want you to be praying uh, for those in the media. And he says, let me send you this, that there's a little bit of a hope. And it's in Variety Magazine, and this is the statement. The conversation in Hollywood is pointing to a major shift. The hope in the industry is that the alleged abhorrent behavior by Weinstein and the other perpetrators will trigger some genuine soul searching across the entertainment business and beyond. Now don't lose that statement. 
genuine soul searching across the entertainment business and beyond. Now, if somebody's going to do some soul searching, there needs to be somebody there who understands the one who died for your soul that can be able to pour into these people. And it's good to know there's guys like, like this and others that are there in Hollywood that as people are going through this soul searching, there's some people they can turn to. Now, if the believers there are living just like everyone else is, nobody's going to turn to them. But if there's a difference in their life, then all of a sudden they've opened up the opportunity for people to come and say, hey, I want to talk to you. Because these things are going off the rails on there. Okay? Second, don't put worn out clothes in a different drawer. Throw them away. Don't put worn out clothes in a different drawer. Throw them away. Verse 8. Verse 8 says this, put away. He says, you need to, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. He says, put them away. That word is like taking off some old clothes. It's a word that means to strip off some old clothes, either those that are nasty and filthy and dirty and just strip them off and throw them away, or they're worn out. They're worn out. Now, for a lot of you wives, you want to circle this verse right here because your husband's got that nasty, those nasty sweatpants that he's had since high school or something, or that old nasty shirt that you've been wanting to get rid of forever, and, uh, and you just quote right there. You gotta put it away. You just gotta put it away. God's word says, yeah, just put that thing away and get it out of here. Now, what happens with us is whenever we got one of these old shirts or something that doesn't quite fit, we don't ever throw it away. We just put it in a different drawer. Uh, and uh, usually it's not the main drawer where all the other clothes are. We put it kind of in another one or up on the top of the closet. So our wife doesn't really see it, um, but we still have it. We can pull it out every so often and wear that, wear that old thing on that. And, and you know, um, the, I think one of the greatest joys uh, when I finished the marathon, came across the marathon, is that it was raining there in New York City. And after you run out there, you know, five and a half hours, whatever, and you're stepping in all that, you, you're kind of muddy and nasty. And when I got back to the hotel room, I had worn some compression socks and some other socks. And so I was taking my shoes off. I didn't realize they were really nasty. Now, the normal Danny would you stick them in a sack, take them home, we'll wash them, and everything will be fine. I thought of my dear wife, and I said, I'm going to put them in the trash can. And uh, I threw those socks away, and I could not tell you how excited I was when I called Janice. I said, hey, she want to tell you. It was pretty messy. Socks were muddy. Threw them away in the hotel. Praise the Lord, man. She was so excited. I love you. Thank you for doing that. And so my wife rejoiced because she says, you don't bring, don't bring those nasty things in here. Just throw them away. And I was trying to think, how much does our Lord rejoice when there's sins, these kind of, these anger and malice and wrath and slander and all that type of stuff and obscene language. And we say, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to throw that away. And then all of a sudden, God comes up and wants to give you a high five and say, thank you. Where most of the time we say, I'm kind of convicted on that. And so I'm going to not put it here, but I'm going to put it in a, another drawer. Because I might need to get back to that a little bit later. No. You know what he said? Put them all away. Put them all away. Just take them and get rid of them. Now, the other thing that you need to look at on verse 8 in verse 8, it says, do not lie to one another. Uh, no, excuse me, excuse me. Verse 8, but now you must put them 
what's your word say? Mine says all. Does yours say that? You must put them all away. What that means is it's not degrees of sin. It's not just God saying, hey, the big ones up here, you need to put those away. He said, put them all away. Whatever sin begins to invade your life, he says, hey, let's just take that and put it all away. Don't put it in another drawer. Just go and put it away. And then he says this. He says, in verse nine, he says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You are being renewed. God does the renewing, and this is what's called the sanctification process. Sanctification, being made holy, being set apart. And so this constant sanctification. When you make a decision for Christ, he comes into your heart, but then there's a work that needs to happen. There's that sanctification process. And he says, in order for me to do this, you gotta put some of these things away. And you don't just put them in another drawer, you gotta throw them away. All right, C. And the C part is something I'm still working on, but I'm just gonna throw it out to you real quick. And that is form habits working out what God worked in. Form habits working out what God worked in. Now, this is where we're talking about a fresh approach. Because see, a lot of times we say, I have not gotten victory over these sins. I've not gotten victory uh, over a lot of things that I'm getting hammered with uh, in my life, and I just don't know if I ever will. And, and will it be just the fact that this is just something I'll deal with until I die and go into eternity? No, the resurrected life is more than that. So how do you get victory over that? Well, I'm in, uh, it's a Bible study that Rick Burgess is leading called The Spirit of the Disciplines. It's a book written by Dallas Willard. And as reading through that book, this is what he's dealing with. And let me just read something of, of what he said. Old habits are hard to break, but the decision to dwell or not to dwell in thought upon certain things and temptations. Think about that. The temptation comes, and you gotta think on it, and you gotta dwell on it. Is that right? That's how it takes over in your life. That's how you sin. Sin usually doesn't happen just like this. It comes, you're thinking about it, and then all of a sudden you act on it. Old habits are hard to break, but the decision to dwell or not to dwell in thought upon certain things and temptations is the freedom secured for us by Christ because he's already taken care of that. Martin Luther says you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. So, temptations are going to fly over. But yet, we get to make the decision, do we let them land and build a nest in our hair? We have the power to identify and dismiss wrong thoughts, and thus by grace, we can escape them. Oswald Chambers says this. If we've experienced regeneration, we must not only talk about it, but exercise it, working out what God worked in form habits on the basis of the grace of God. And if we refuse to practice, it's not God's grace that fails when a crisis comes, but it's our own nature. And when the crisis comes, we ask God to help us, but he cannot if we have not made our nature our ally. The practicing is ours, not God's. God regenerates us and puts us in contact with all his divine resources, but he cannot make us walk according to his will. You need to understand this. Just because we are saved and we say, oh, I'm regenerated and God's spirit lives within me, God has given us every, the keys to all the divine resources. 
But we've got to be able to practice exercise in order to tap into those resources. Otherwise, the temptation comes and we cry out, oh, God, help me. And he's sitting there going, hey, what, what can I do? I provided you everything that you need, but you've not practiced anything. You don't have any habits. You don't have anything in you to be able to get away from this sin. And he says, so we need to form habits that will work out what God has already worked in us. Emulate the life of Jesus. Emulate his habits of prayer and fasting and solitude and service and studying the work of God and studying the word of God. Think about those things. Say, is there any time in your life where you've got solitude or just get away with you and God? Maybe I need to put some of that in there. What about sacrifice? What about sacrificial living? Has you ever, have you ever stepped out and, 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 and sacrificed? Sacrificed something, whether it be financially or any other area of your life. Have you ever really had a meditative study time in God's Word? Not a five-minute devotion, but a really a meditative study time in God's Word. Have you ever set aside a season of prayer? Have you ever thought about fasting for a while? It could be fasting one meal during the week. It could be taking a Wednesday afternoon and saying, hey, I'm not going to eat lunch there. I'm just going to drink some liquids. And then during that hour, I'm going to read, read God's Word and pray and see what God has for me. What you do is you begin to form these habits in your life. And when you begin to form these habits and these disciplines, then when temptation begins to come, you have like flexing your spiritual muscles and said, I can't, I got that. Not, not from your sense of, of pride, but God's spirit through me. We can handle this. We've practiced for this. We're ready for it. Okay? And the very last thing is added benefits. Added benefits. When there are old problems and you put a new perspective to it, you take a fresh approach, it could be a life that it, you would help you live this resurrected life and it'll be good for you and it'll be good for the church, but here's the added benefit. Look what it says in verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Here's a statement to write down. The gospel unites differences and creates a unified people. The gospel unites differences. I love that phrase. It's not that the gospel erases differences. No, it unites differences and it creates a unified people. The last thing Paul was telling the Colossian people, he says, uh, listen, we're all one under Christ and we can come together. There's not Greek and Jew. That's their national origin. Some of you are Greek, some of you are Jew. Hey, we're all one over here. Circumcised, uncircumcised religious understandings, religious ceremonies that you have. There's barbarian and Scythian, two different cultures. Barbarians and Scythians, both of them were looked down upon and they had their own uh, prejudices against them. He said, we're all one, slave and free, economics. Some of you have done well, you've made a lot of money, you're free, some of you have almost nothing to your name, you're a slave. And so if you take those same things and you look at today and it says it doesn't matter what your race is, what your color is, what your creed is, what your social economic status is, what your education status is, there is a oneness in the body of Christ. And that's why we are to respect every person and we're to love every person because of who Christ is. And so as Paul wraps up this portion, the part one of living that resurrected life, he's just reminding them, Listen, these are old problems. Old problems that were in your pagan life. These are old problems that are going to pull and push at you in this new life. But you gotta have a whole new perspective. 
This resurrected life, my perspective is, is that I've got a heavenly perspective and seek the things that are above. And then when I do that, I gotta take some new approaches. And there are a number of us here who said, I've been struggling with some stuff and I've been just using the same old approach and it just hasn't been working. Maybe I need to use a new approach. Yeah, use some new approaches. Pull up those roots, get those things out of those old drawers and just throw them away. And then begin to form those habits. Wouldn't it be cool if you walked out of here and you said, you know what? I'd like to at least form one new habit, one spiritual habit. Could be fasting, could be prayer, could be solitude, could be sacrifice, could be service of giving myself to others. I would choose one thing and begin to exercise that muscle, begin to take those resources that God has put in me and then begin to exercise those things. And then all of a sudden, when those temptations come, I'm going to be prepared for it. And the added benefit is when you begin to live that resurrected life, you're going to look at people differently. You're not going to look at them by skin color. You're not going to look at them by economic status. Uh, You're going to just see them as a a person who God loves and whom Jesus Christ died for. And it'll change the way that you respond to them. Wow. That's what we've got. Living the resurrected life. May each one of us try to attain to live that type of life. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word and for the resurrected life that you give us that opportunity to live. Lord, this is not a burden. This is incredible. It's incredible that we're able to live a life that is empowered by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so I pray that today, as each one of us does inventory of our own lives, that we would make, uh, make the decision to say, I want it to be better. I want it to be better. I want it to be a life that brings honor and glory to you. I want it to be a life that brings respect to my family and to my work and to my friends. I want to live a life that can be used by you, that we can advance your kingdom. I want to live a life that I can pour into other people's lives and help their lives be better. And I want to live a life that when someone is hurting, that you can use me to give a word or just my presence or maybe it's putting an arm around someone that would help them through that. Father, so much opportunity that we have to be able to live as kingdom citizens and to live this resurrected life. Let us take this serious because it's a joyful thing. So as we begin to come to the end of this service, may your spirit speak to us. And and Father, may we make even commitments right here in these pews as we walk out these doors in a few moments that it'll be different. It'll be a different direction. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.